Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westridge-Robertson. I am the CEO of the organization, but I'm also a person living with these diseases. And I am super excited for today's episode because we are launching the very first full episode of our special series that we call Roomy Rounds. And the reason we call that is because patients call their doctors roomies, in case you rheumatologists out there were not aware that that's what you're called. (laughs) So in saying that, Roomy Rounds is a series where we unite patients and rheumatologists or rheumatologist professionals at the table as equals so that we could have conversations about important topics that we have identified we need to come together to solve in the here and the now. So who is with me at the table, you may ask. I'm very excited about who's here today. So I'm going to first start with my fellow patient co-host, Miss Kelly. Hey there, Kelly. Hey, Tiffany. How are you? I'm good. This is Kelly Conway. I am the co-founder of AI Arthritis, and I'm also the author of the blog, As My Joints Turn, My Autoimmune Soap Opera. So I'm happy to be here. Great. Thanks, Kelly. And then we're going to turn it over to someone who, if you have tuned into the show This is somebody that you know and you know well. We've got my own rheumatologist here. That could be Dr. Al Kim, Dr. Kim, Dr. Al. And now I have actually progressed to just calling him Al. Hey, Al. (laughs) Hi, Tiffany. It's great to be here. My name's Al. I am an adult rheumatologist at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. And I also founded and co-direct the Lupus Clinic there. Great. Thank you so much for being here. And we have two more rheumatologists with us at the table today. And I'm going to say hello to Dr. Vivica Strand. Hi, Vivica. Hi there, Tiffany. So I'm a rheumatologist, an adult rheumatologist. I teach at Stanford. So I'm an adjunct clinical professor there in the Division of Immunology, Rheumatology. And thereby I see patients and work with fellows and give lectures and do all those fun things. But I also work as a consultant in new product development in rheumatology, both the the regulatory issues dealing with the FDA and the clinical issues, trial design and analysis, and then defending those products at the FDA. So I'm very happy to be here and I'm pleased to have been asked to join. Thank you. Yes, we're all very happy to have you as well. Last but not least, we have Dr. Jeff Sparks. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Tiffany. Hello, everyone. So I'm an adult rheumatologist at Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. I do clinical research and see patients. My research prior to COVID was in rheumatoid arthritis, and now I'm also doing COVID research, as uh, many others are. And yeah, I wish we were actually around the same table, but it's good to virtually (laughs) be with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as an organization, we were founded in 2011, and we always had this sort of at-the-table philosophy, and we set our organization up to be virtual. And now here we are. Bringing, we were we apparently trendsetters. Visionaries. I know. Who knew? <laughs> we were visionaries. Who knew? <laughs> who knew? So anyway, we and, and one thing that I want to point out with this talk show and with all the work that we do, including this special series, is the idea is we have conversations. We This is not necessarily an interview type style. We are all equal sitting at the table talking about these important issues. And then we're going to invite all of you listening to come to our table too. So that, Jeff, is why it is good being virtual because we would be very crowded if we brought <laughs> that many people to sit in person. But you are all invited to be at the table as well. 
So let's go ahead and get started. And well, what is the topic that we decided we needed to come here and discuss today? So I'm going to first start by saying this is airing in February of 2021. We do need to date everything as things in this era of COVID-19 and vaccinations are moving very quickly. So if you tuned in about a month ago, Kelly, myself, and Al, Dr. Kim, did an episode on vaccinations, and we ended up calling it Vaccinations and Mixed Messages, because through while it intended to be answering questions that patients had submitted to us and gaining those answers, what we realized was a really large disconnect in the facts that what rheumatologists were telling patients varied. And I know, Kelly, I know you had several of these that you had brought up that doctors were saying. I want to know if you wanted to give a couple quick examples. Yeah. So I was saying I was in like an author's book club and somebody was saying, posted a picture of their daughter getting the vaccine. And it just sort of started this little thread of people who had lupus and RA and psoriatic arthritis and going on and on saying, well, my doctor said, no, I can't get it. My doctor said, I'm not recommending you get it because it's not FDA approved and I don't want to get sued if you get sick. And just a lot of things popped up. And I was like, oh, well, I called my rheumatologist and my rheumatologist told me there's absolutely no reason for me not to get it. And then after reading this thread, I called my rheumatology department again and said, just double checking. Do I need to stop my medication? Because that was something else. A lot of people were getting different information. Some people stopped everything, like all the way down to Plaquenil, which to me didn't make sense since, you know, we've been hearing so much about that in the news, but also... People were told to stop all of their biologic drugs for like some were told a month, some were told a week, some were told to stop it altogether until the vaccine is ended. So there was lots of different information. When I called my rheumatology office, they said, if we felt that you should not get the vaccine, we would have contacted you separately. Like all of us looked at our patient list and said, "Okay, do we need to call people for certain precautions? So I was not on that list. I was just told to take it. Thanks for that overview, Kelly. That was awesome. So essentially what ended up happening was we had this conversation with with Al, with Dr. Kim, and we said, we are just hearing too many mixed messages. We're going into these online communities because Kelly and I, being patients ourselves, we're getting these mixed messages. And then what was happening is patients were actually sort of fighting with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, my roomie said this and my roomie said that. And it, and it led to some patients saying, there's so much confusion, I don't want to do anything until I I get more information. And that in itself was a little dangerous. So we decided it was time for all of us to come together and talk a little bit more about this. In the interim, and this is how fast things move, as we were planning this, the American College of Rheumatology, or the ACR, put out some clinical guidance on vaccinations. And I am going to um, turn it over to our rheumatologists here to give a little bit of a background on what this guidance is. Okay, well, so it's a guidance, which means that it's recommendations and it doesn't have to be adhered to strictly. But I think the first thing is that it suggests that all of our patients with all of our rheumatic diseases is safe enough for for them to get a vaccination. And it's safer if they get the vaccination than if they don't. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that almost all the medications that we prescribe should be taken with either a very minimal interruption or no interruption, because it's much more important to get the vaccination when your disease is in control than when it's out of control. And we certainly don't want to precipitate flares if we can avoid that for any reason at all. So I think those are the biggest points. I think there's a lot of different specifics, but by and large, with a few exceptions, we continue the medications. Okay, thank you so much for giving us that overview. And I think that it's also important to mention that this is a living document and we know that things are going to evolve and things are going to change. And I do believe too, I was watching the ACR podcast on this yesterday, doing my due diligence here. And they were talking about how it was based largely on the existing vaccines that are that are right. out. And, and maybe we can touch in a little bit on what that means moving forward for the other vaccinations. Because I know patients are questioning, well, then what, does, what do these guidelines mean? Are they, can they be crossed over to, to the others? Or is that part of what the living document is? So we can circle back on that um, for sure. So essentially, 
What ended up happening is we've identified a third issue here. So again, things moving very fast. We were very excited to see this guidance from the ACR. And again, it just came out on February 10th, and we are recording this only a week or so later. And what we're realizing is, unless you are a person like Kelly or myself that may be very privy to education early on, and we are as an organization trying to get that out, trying to get the notification. So are our, our good friends at like Creaky Joints, Global Healthy Living Foundation, Arthritis Foundation. Everybody's trying to get the word out, but not everybody's seeing it. And what we're finding again in these online communities and some of the questions we're getting into our own emails at our organization, patients are not understanding that something has changed with guidance. So we have this sort of weird limbo where we're in, where there's new guidance out, but patients were told by the rheumatologists a month ago, don't get the vaccine yet. There's not enough research. Stop your treatments. And, and the message is not connecting to patients here and now. So we definitely want to dive into that issue. What can we do as a community, as rheumatologists and as organizations and patients to help each other in this kind of bridging time? So let's jump in to talking about sort of these existing barriers. So we mentioned a few of the things that patients have been saying on hesitation. And I was wondering if maybe Jeff or Al, do you have anything you have been noticing as far as maybe rheumatology hesitancy? So at least from my perspective, I haven't seen anything from the St. Louis region in terms of rheumatologists not offering or not telling their patients that they shouldn't get it. I, I think that most have been saying that there's a good reason for that. I think, though, in the St. Louis region, we do have a somewhat galvanized community because we have occasional kind of citywide conferences where we can discuss these things, and they rely on our guidance in order to then you know, implement to their practice. And we've been telling patients to get vaccinated if they can and if they want to. So again, this is very going to be region specific. Rural Missouri is going to be probably very different because they're not really within our ecosystem. So and there, I actually don't have very much of an idea what's going on, which is a problem. Yeah, it's been interesting that, you know, typically the rheumatologists have a lot of control over who gets a vaccine. We decide whether it's appropriate, we order it, our nurses give it and it's kind of all self-contained. I think it's been very interesting in this one because, you know, there's been plenty of patients who are really eager to get the vaccine who tell me after the fact. And we're kind of experiencing this through waves. And, you know, I think right now, at least here, the rheumatologists are very in favor of their patients getting vaccinations. And most of the feedback we're hearing are from patients who are very eager to receive it. But it is good to reflect and know that there's a lot of patients that haven't reached out that are hesitant and you know, there's a spectrum, of course, of, of everything. So I think right now, you know, I'm getting mostly feedback about when do you think I'm going to be eligible based, and there's a lot of, you know, state variation as far as eligibility. And unfortunately, most rheumatology patients don't seem to be eligible unless they were eligible based on being a healthcare worker or by age. So there's been a lot of frustration that our diseases as comorbidities aren't getting them to the front of the line. But yeah, it's been very interesting because, you know, we're we're kind of on the sideline a bit because we, we don't really have the control about who gets it and who doesn't. Right. I, I think that's a big issue because we've been doing a lot of telemedicine. And as it is, just getting through that visit and so on and taking care of more immediate things, we don't get the chance to discuss the, the questions and answers about the vaccinations. So that I think that's another point. Ooh, that's a really good point because that's probably yeah. why a lot of patients, Kelly, they're finding each other. Yeah. They're not able to get all of the information. Right. And right. so we're, we're, we're finding each other to ask online. And, you know, we also live in an age of social media where people do, that's their source of news. Right. And it, that's a blessing and a curse. I mean, it does have its good points. I mean, we wouldn't be sitting here today if Tiffany and I didn't meet each other online. <laughs> 10 years ago or 11 years ago, however, however many years ago it was. But again, there's so much misinformation. There's so many myths. There's so many things that are, you know, one person can say it's black and you're going to have five people below them in a comment section that say it's white. So there are such a disconnect. I think another barrier that we do have to just mention, at least here in the United States, has been the weather. The weather has caused a huge amount of delay in distribution. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who were supposed to get their vaccines. Now, I live in the Philadelphia area. I went to a mass vaccination site 
and they had to close for weather. So people miss their shot and that has to be rescheduled. And I know in Texas, that's a great big issue where they're actually they're taking the vaccines to homeless shelters. So the vaccinations don't go to waste. Again, I think we have to mention that weather is something and rescheduling and timelines. And I know, Al, you had said if you miss the four weeks, because, again, I'm driving a total of three hundred and fifty five miles, I think, to get my mother her vaccine. And it's next Friday, which is still in February. And we've had so much snow. So I had asked Al before, you know, what if we were late a week or what happened? So is there any knowledge of timelines when we have the barriers such as nature just preventing us to get to where we need to be? Like, what would the timeline be for that for the second vaccine? So I don't know if the timeline has been well, you know, if there, if there are differences in timeline, whether or not that impacts responses. And I think we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive just because your audience is going to be a little bit more sophisticated than most. But I think one thing that I just want to warn everyone that's looking at vaccine data is that there's a couple different types of data that are being presented. One that's right after the second vaccine, and we're talking the mRNA vaccines. Right. And a lot of this is going to be kind of the peak antibody levels. But the more important one are actually what we call in the business memory responses. So this is where you're looking months afterwards. The reason why is that the antibodies tend to have a lot more diversity, they can recognize more of the vaccine itself, and that actually enhances protection. And those responses can't be seen at the early time point. And so why I'm bringing this up is that, you know, much of the data that's being presented in terms of the timing of the two vaccines is going to be just looking at that short term time point. I would bet that the long term time points, the quality of the response of that the month three, month six and beyond, probably aren't going to be that much different if you waited a week or even two weeks or even got the vaccine and maybe even a hair early. I don't, you know, I'm not sure if that's going to make play a a big role. I think that's really important. Can I ask you guys to clarify too, this is something else that's been coming up a lot. A lot of people have been making appointments at different places. So some might have gotten their first vaccine at one place, missed their second vaccine because of a snow day or weather, And so they're like, well, I'll just go to that other appointment, which was a first vaccine day. Are the vaccines two different vaccines? I think that's something patients do not know. Are they the same or are they different? And is that I don't even know if you guys know (laughs) how to address that. But that came up to me in an email today. It'd be good to reach out to the center about that. I think that's what I I told them to do. (laughs) My impression is that they're kind of shipped in pairs and like the second dose is sort of reserved after the first dose. So. You want to yeah. definitely make sure every dose, you know, gets used. They are similar in type, but but they are different from each other. And ostensibly, the testing has all been done when you've had the second dose of the same vaccine. I don't think the timing, and whether it's the three weeks for the Pfizer or the four weeks for the Moderna, is as critical. Getting the second one is important because, like Al was saying, You want to have that long-term memory response. And some of that is not just antibodies, it's T-cells. And the T-cell memory is really what gives you the longest-term protection. And so that's important to have both. But I think you can get it with some variation in the time in between. And they've also started telling us out of Israel, where they've vaccinated like 94% of those people (laughs) who are over the age of 65, that essentially they already have manifestations of protection in terms of even if they get infected, they're not carrying nearly as much virus, they're not shedding as much virus. I've been getting a lot of questions coming in about what you just said, patients, they want the data too. So it's not just the rheumatologist, they're looking for the data, the patients are as well and asking. I had, we had a couple of questions come in today talking about the antibody response. And they wanted to know, will my rheumatologist be following up with me in some way to know if I have an antibody response? So does anyone want to (laughs) respond to that one? Yeah, I'll I'll respond to that one. I mean, generally, we are not. Even within our study that we're doing, we are not simply because it's not necessarily clinically actionable. So if you're high or you're low, what do you do? We don't know. And as a result, 
based off of research ethics guidelines, we are not allowed to be able to return information to the subject in order to protect identities, in order to ensure that they are de-identified, unless it's clinically actionable. The other problem too is what time point do you measure? Like I said earlier, everyone focuses on that early time point, but the reality is, is that the more later time points are more important. And I think the third issue too is that I'm not even sure where I can get an S protein ELISA, which is going to be right. the protein that is used as the vaccine core, you know, for both the Moderna and Pfizer and and, and the J and J uh, and AstraZeneca versions too. So I actually, I actually don't know where I could order that clinically. I think also there's a lot of individual variability, and the antibody response is, of course, the first thing we're going to look at. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to have a good chronic memory response, both memory antibodies and also memory T cells. So it, it's not gonna give us the full picture. And you know they were showing us earlier that, gee, people get infected and then three months later, they no longer have antibodies to COVID. Well, I don't really think that's true. It means you can't measure them passively, but you haven't been stimulated by say another infection. And then we're also hearing about the variants and they're saying, well, maybe we'll give you a booster. Well, that's probably not going to matter which vaccine you had the first time. It's just going to, shall we say, expand the response so that you can feel safer. So as we're talking about the barriers and hesitation in particular, we still wanted to cover the different vaccination types since that wasn't in the guidance. And is there anything else that we want to touch before we merge into sort of the education? Yeah. So I think earlier we were talking about hesitancy amongst rheumatologists, but you know there has been hesitancy from patients. And I would say that since I particularly see lupus patients, you know we're about 70% African-American, and I would say a little over half have chosen not to get the COVID vaccine. Uh, number one reason is that uh, they feel like that it will destabilize their disease. Second reason is that they feel like they've been doing such a good job with their own avoidance of other people and masking and they haven't had it yet. You know, so there's a little bit of a recency and confirmation bias with that. I get that. The third thing is that they feel like they need more information, that it needs more research. Again, you know, the, this cohort has not been tested before. So those are been the three main barriers that I've been seeing in now probably close to 50 people that I and my lupus patients that have said that now. And we've been keeping tallies of this. So yeah, Kelly, you can confirm as well that those are the top reasons that we're hearing as well. And then there's another another one that's that sort of emerged, and that is the question of choice. And you have to remember, our organization is international as well. So there's there's different vaccinations offered right. in, in different locations, and so some places that I mean that they have they have something different. But then when you have like Kelly, you had a sort of had a choice. Yeah. So when I was contacted by my administration, they sent us a list of all the places in Pennsylvania that were offering vaccines. So I went through the list and certain places would only have Moderna. Certain places would only have Pfizer. Now, from my own experience, when both vaccines came out, I remember reading more about Moderna and thinking Moderna is the one I want to take. I don't want to worry about the freezing temperature and I didn't want to worry about that stuff. And I also and I could be wrong. I read stuff about the passing on of the virus. But again, you, I take everything I hear on the news with a grain of salt until numbers come out because I don't know that. So when I went through, I chose places that had Moderna. But then what happened eventually, people were getting Moderna faster than Pfizer, at least here in Pennsylvania. So I, myself and my mother both ended up with Moderna. And now the other thing I'm hearing since then is that people who take, and again, this is all with a grain of salt, people who get the Pfizer vaccine don't get sick, but people who get the Moderna vaccine do. I wish do. that weren't true. So that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And because... I exactly. And that's what I was hearing the day I got my second vaccine. And I admit I did get very sick for two days. I was pretty sick. But I know people who had the Pfizer vaccine who also were very sick. Yeah. So, again, to me, the side effects are better than getting COVID. Well, I think that's where this leads into. I think that was the conversation is, is again, Kelly, I want to mention this is a timeline thing. 
because I wanted our rheumatologists to weigh in a little bit on the fact that the goal of the vaccine and not necessarily to look at that 95%, right? right. I mean, we're, we're encouraging people to get the vaccine right. <laughs> regardless. Could somebody weigh in a little bit on that? Because I, th- I okay. think that needs to be addressed. Well, I think before we get to that real quick, it's important that you get the second vaccination with the same vaccine that you got the first one with, because that's going to be that booster response that we look for in antibodies and T cells. Well, that now see that that just directed me in a totally <laughs> different sorry. question, though. I'm and that, sorry. That's okay. That's what this, that's what conversation <laughs> does, and that is just fine. That's why we do this. Another big issue, and it's not just in other countries. We've been hearing it in and in the United States. We've been hearing other places the lack of enough access to vaccinations only recommending that one vaccination instead of everybody having two. Anyone want to <laughs> weigh in on that? <laughs> yeah, I'll weigh in on that. You know, I think this is incredibly complex. And I think we just have to say that from the outset that yes. people have, you know, prior experiences and some have strong beliefs. Some have different sources of information that have, you know, varying opinions. And I think you just have to recognize that this is not a simple solution. And Patients with rheumatic diseases have their own disease state, their history of diseases, vaccinations that they've received before and after the disease, you know, what their current medication regimen is. And then you think about geographic barriers, social determinants of health. You know, this is not a simple issue. And there's perhaps many reasons why someone would or would not get it. So I think as clinicians, we have to, you know, understand where a patient's coming from, understand their barriers and try to confront it. I'll say that on this topic, I'm, as you guys are probably aware of, but, you know, there's at the early part of the pandemic, many rheumatologists and patients and providers and organizations came together to form the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance. And it's really been remarkable what's been accomplished in the papers that have come out of that. And our, our newest venture, which I'm leading with Julia Samard from Stanford, is to disseminate a survey internationally about the decision-making you know, hesitancy, willingness, all the barriers that we're thinking about. And we want this to be international. And it's interesting because we piloted the uh, survey and we found that there's really interesting things that I would have never thought of. You know, for instance, there are other vaccines internationally. There's a Russian vaccine, there's a Chinese vaccine, there's the J&J vaccine. And right now in the U.S. at this moment, we just have the mRNA vaccines. And it's going to be a different ballgame when we have more vaccines here. And then those patients may not have the mRNA vaccine as readily available. So it's just been interesting seeing what, uh, you know, there's there's a lot there's a lot of complexity that goes into this. And it's something that the rheumatologist should really help sort out if possible. So I think the other thing is that you may hear things, but really we think that the two mRNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, behave very, very similarly. Some people get more sick with the second vaccination, and it's not specific to one or the other. And if you have allergies, that's not likely to be the reason that you might have an anaphylactic reaction or acute allergic reaction, because what we think is causing the allergy is something that the vaccines are essentially, should we say, diluted in, that they're they're actually stabilized in. And it's something which we call polyethylene glycol or PEG, And it's in toothpaste, it's in detergents, it's even in some of our foods. And so all of us are liable to have a reaction, but very, very few do on the order of like two and a half to maybe five people per thousand. And so it's really not a common thing at all. And that should be one of the things that you shouldn't be afraid of especially because they, after you get the vaccine, you're required to wait for those 15 minutes when you're most likely to have a reaction. So there's lots of help around that period of time in case such a thing would occur. And by and large, most of them haven't been true anaphylaxis, haven't required epinephrine. That's been something that actually came up in a group Tiffany and I were in and people were saying they wanted to see the ingredients. Well, it's very easy to find the ingredients. I literally posted them in two seconds because when you go to sign up for the vaccine, you're actually given, if you do it electronically, you're given a link. And that link takes you right through. And I did look up, my mother's allergic to a lot of things. I looked up everything and we called her doctor just to be sure. And she was told to get it. Now, granted, she's never had a reaction to a vaccine in the past. So we were feeling pretty safe with that. And this is, you know, these vaccines are different. So it's it's yeah. like if you had an allergy to a drug, it doesn't mean you're allergic to all drugs. So 
Even if exactly. you've had a bad vaccine reaction in the past, this is a different ball game. And it's probably obvious, but it needs to be stated, you're way more likely to have a bad outcome after getting the infection <laughs> than getting the vaccine. That's the whole point of it. Exactly. These are very safe. I mean, I think that's what we need to circle back too. So I think if we could talk a little bit about why it is important, kind of that barrier and benefits that we were talking about. And also, I just want to circle back with Vivica on this idea of choice and the, oh, well, I want the one that's 95%. I think that patients need to understand what the end goal is of this vaccination. I, I have to tap onto that, Tiffany. When the J&J data came in and Dr. Fauci was on the news and I think he was saying, I think it was around 85%. People online were going off about how, how is he saying that one is still good when it's so much less in, you know, in 95%? Why don't we get all, all of us get that one? So that is a really good question because that I've seen that pop up quite a bit. I think it's important to highlight that our best vaccines prior to the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines are 70%. Exactly. Flu's around 40, 50%. No one complained at that point, right? Exactly. And so, I mean, that's a cynical view. <laughs> well, everybody has become an expert. You know, everybody gets their doctorate from Grey's Anatomy <laughs> and Facebook. So I think that's something that, you know, people, again, people know what they know and they don't know what they don't know, but it doesn't stop them from adding their two cents. But in reality, even the even the flu vaccine is only, what, 40 to 40, 40 to 60 percent. And, and I just think that we need to make it really clear when people are this idea of choice and waiting, waiting for the better one, quote unquote. And, and I think that I'd like the rheumatologist to really just drive that home as far as get what you can get. And does it matter if you get one that's 95 percent or a different percentage? So those numbers are really sort of based on antibody responses, and we already talked about the fact that they don't perfectly reflect by any means what your actual chronic memory response is going to be to the vaccination. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that some of the measures have been different, and with the J&J, which doesn't have 95%, has 100% protection against hospitalizations if someone gets infected, at least from that study. And so we'll have to see what the FDA says when they review the vaccination next week. But it really seems to me that that's why Fauci is saying that they're all, if they're going to be approved by the FDA, they're all going to be very similarly effective and protective. I mean, I think it's so hard to get a vaccine now that if you're offered one. Get it. Um, again, talk to your rheumatologist, but it's better to be vaccinated than not, that's for sure. And as far as I can see, every vaccine that you know, has presented phase three data, it's really highly efficacious to prevent severe disease, which is typically defined by hospitalized COVID. And that's certainly something our patients need to avoid. Yeah. And that's something that came up in my family because, again, I ended up getting into a mass vaccination site and I went and I stood in a room with hundreds of other people and we got our vaccines. My mom, tracking down one for her was very difficult. And again, we lost my father and we lost my mom's only brother to COVID. My mom also has severe COPD. So I am basically, I live two hours away and I am her next in line to help her with anything she needs. So my goal is to get her vaccinated so that at some point we can have other people possibly go and help her because at this point we allow nobody in the house. I found through a popular drugstore chain, I went onto their link. I was 5,000th in line the first day. The next day I was 6,000th in line. And then finally, after a week, I got through and there were two sites nowhere near where she lived. One was about an hour and a half away in a different county. And the other one was near the New York state border. And my mother lives close to the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. So I chose the one close to the New York state border and I drove. Well, my mom wasn't happy with that. And I don't blame her. Being in a car is hard on her. You know, taking the oxygen, it's just an event. So she actually called the local place because I wasn't able to get her into the local clinic until March 2nd. She called on her own to see if she could get an earlier appointment. And the person scheduling her literally said the same thing Jeff just said. If you got an appointment for a vaccine sooner, you need to take it. It's very hard right now to get appointments. So hopefully beyond a total whiteout next Friday, I'll be driving another 350 miles to get her second vaccine. So I think that's a really important thing. If you get an appointment, you really should try and go through with it. Absolutely. 
So as we're wrapping up this portion of the importance of education segment here, is there anything else other than the barriers and benefits and the shared decision-making, which we're going to go to next, that we want to make sure that we cover the most important education that a patient should know about getting the vaccine? I think there's one point. Lots of people with rheumatic diseases have autoantibodies. And so people have been worried about an mRNA vaccination and whether that might trigger an autoantibody response or whatever. So really what we think now is that our data from having a COVID infection is that it actually will have the potential to generate far more autoantibodies and much worse disease than anything that might be considered to be an autoantibody response that could be related to the vaccination. Now, we don't have we don't have a lot of data yet, but we have millions of people who have already been vaccinated. And if something like this was going to be emerging, we would have already had some signal of this. So I, I wanted to just say that I think that's one more thing to be reassured about. It doesn't matter if you have autoantibodies insofar as we want you to have a response to the vaccine so that you don't get COVID because... The data with COVID in our diseases can often indicate much worse sickness. Yeah. Vivica brings up a really good point that, you know, the phase three clinical trials for both Moderna and Pfizer were the largest ones for any vaccine ever. Right? These are the largest vaccine clinical trials and, you know, bigger than the Shingrix one. And the numbers should give us confidence about seeing, you know, severe events. And even you know the rare events that occur, I mean, it did capture some of them, right? So that's just the anaphylaxis. Again, that's been confirmed to be rare in the real world setting. So again, I think the the data is there. People want more data, and there are certain populations, obviously, like autoimmune patients. But nevertheless, I do think that the general consensus is that you know, these vaccines are highly effective and safe. Thank you for reminding us all of that, because I think that that's a, a really important takeaway. And also just to piggyback on what Kelly was saying, too, is just remembering why we we need vaccines as well. I mean, we don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system. We want to make sure we're protecting our loved ones. We want to make sure we get this under control. And I think it's also important to remember that we're still going to have to wear masks. You know, we're getting back to normal in some sense, in some ways, but it's not going to be the normal we're all hoping for. But I think decreasing, you know, my dad and my uncle weren't going places. They both fell and they both oh. needed hospital treatment. And that's what happened to them. So again, overwhelming the hospitals is really taking a toll on people who were really, you know, I hate to say it, but innocent victims in all of this. So that's important reason to get the vaccine. So let's dive in here to discussing how we as a community can assess barriers and benefits of getting the vaccine and how that ties into shared decision-making. One of the things in the ACR clinical guidelines that really made an effort to say this is about shared decision-making. And, and we, as our organization, really gravitated to that because it's something that came up in our episode <laughs> in January. And that had to do with we're all unique and we were getting a lot of blanket statements. Patients saying, my rheumatologist said, blanket statement, don't get it too early. And so we kind of went back to these archaic times of just not having that unique experience. And one of the things that I know, and a lot of it has to do with the work by Novivico at Omeract with the shared decision-making group is, is, you know, you have to have information, you have to have education. And you've got, that is the piece that I feel strongly is missing right now. In order to get patients to be able to have that initial conversation with their doctor, we need to bring that up. We need to talk about how do we how do we do that. I think it's really important, and it obviously it really means that you have a chance to sit down and talk with your rheumatologist or your roomie, or else you have the opportunity to do it by phone or however you can do it, maybe a telemedicine appointment. But in thinking about it. I think you should think about three things. You should think about what are your risks for getting the infection? Because that's obviously what we're very much targeted to is, is stopping this pandemic. But what are your specific risks? Do you have some other comorbidities that are likely to make you have a worse infection as well, or more likely even to have you get sicker? 
then what are your risks for the complications, which is what I just went into. So not just, you know, are you going to be exposed to the infection based on the kind of work you do and where you work or who you're with or, you know, what other places you've been or if you had some social gatherings and so on, but what are your risks for having a more complicated course of COVID? And finally, what's your risk to infecting others? So if you're trying to think about you know, your own personal risk, but how likely are you going to be to passing on this infection if you don't protect yourself from it? So I think those are the things to think about when you have this discussion. Great points. Jeff or Al, would you like to add to that? Definitely. Every patient I see, I talk about the vaccine and I try to understand kind of what their risk benefit is and how likely or unlikely they are and really just trying to gauge what's most important to them, just like what Vivica said. And there are some where it's very important. They want to get it ASAP. And most of what we're talking about is like the logistics of actually getting it, when they're going to be eligible, that kind of stuff. And then there are patients, just like Al said, that you know have legitimate concerns about things that are important to them. And so troubleshooting sort of how to assuage them for that is important. I think the guidance document was really helpful in that you know here's our organization saying clearly that the uh, benefits outweigh the risks and some more data needs to happen. But at this point, we really recommend all of our patients to get it. Mm -hmm. And certainly I've never had more patients reach out to me, but again, there's patients out there that aren't reaching out to me. And um, you know, those are the ones that I wish I could talk to and kind of understand what is going on in their mind. So I would not hesitate to reach out to your rheumatologist, Rumi. <laughs> oh, you know, I want to get used to that one. <laughs> yeah. We're getting used to it. <laughs> I, I can't believe you all didn't know. You didn't know that's what we call you. That's what we, that's what it is. I'm feeling achy right now. Uh, oh, my goodness. She's feeling roomy. Yeah, I, I was just going to kind of recap that, you know, Vipika brings up, I can think, those three critical questions. And I think Jeffrey, though, also highlights that a lot of our patients just want to hear from the rheumatologist about the basics of the vaccine, the how it will work when they would get it potentially, et cetera. But I think one thing that I'm also starting to realize is that, and we've had discussions about this, Tiffany, offline, is that not all the physicians have all the information, right? That is, I'm not surprised necessarily, but it is stunning in this day and age that they don't have the information to be able to have this type of discussion with their patients. And that's something we didn't bring up very early on in terms of rheumatology hesitancy, but that's something I think that's been surprising for some of my patients that they say, well, I just don't know because mm -hmm. my, my, my primary doesn't know. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good point. So going back to the newness of these guidelines that came out, what happens, let me put it this way, what happens if some rheumatologists still just say, you know, this is what I believe. I feel there's more research. Is that something that is likely to happen? And if so, how would a patient who, if we're encouraging from our end to do shared decision-making, how does that balance out? And maybe that that's just a hypothetical. Maybe it's not going to be an issue, but I'm just curious. I haven't run across any of those, luckily. <laughs> uh, certainly it's possible. And again, I think if, if you're someone, if you're as a rheumatologist, if you felt like there wasn't guidance, well, there's now an official guidance document. Again, I think it was really quite useful of our organization to do that in, you know, a very quick time. But, you know, certainly there's the shared decision making is you got to get on a level from both sides of the of the aisle. And, you know, everyone's viewpoints start a little bit differently. And again, everyone's got their own spectrum of things. Let me ask you a, a quick question, because as our organization being international, and I spent probably two hours this morning just fielding the questions that were coming in. We have a form on our website for people to submit. So we're getting questions from Australia and you know, lots of different areas. And I still responded with the ACR guidelines because it is the United States, but they are good guidance, correct, for other rheumatologists who have questions as well. Now, I do know it's the mRNA vaccine. And I guess my point B question to that is, so A, is it how relevant is this as a tool for other rheumatologists and patients to look at in other areas of the world that don't have these guidelines yet? Well, I think they're very relevant because lots of our data about vaccination in rheumatic disease patients 
I don't think you want to call them roomy disease patients. So I'll say rheumatic disease patients. Mm-hmm. But it is from prior experience with other vaccines, like Al mentioned the Shingrix vaccine and also the flu vaccine. And then also we have the pneumococcal vaccine or the pneumonia vaccine. We've learned that these are safe in patients with rheumatic diseases, and that's informed us. And so when the guidelines have some points about either stopping medication for a week or making sure you don't get your vaccination until right before the next injection or infusion, those are based on that kind of evidence. And so I think that that's, it doesn't matter whether it's an mRNA vaccine or it's another way, the point being that it's what we've learned from vaccines and the immune response to them. You reminded me what my part B was. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, because the patients who are international, they have different vaccinations that they're offered. Mm -hmm. So knowing that these guidelines were based on those. But like you said, Vibhika, I think that's important to note. They were based on the past knowledge of, of vaccinations. Anything else that anyone wanted to add about benefit and barrier? I think one last barrier I wanted to mention is that there are discordances amongst guidances by different organizations, right? And I think the most glaring one is the NPF, the National Psoriasis Foundation, and the ACR, right? Where the National Psoriasis Foundation, I'm going to read this verbatim. This is their guidance 4.6. Quote, it is recommended that patients who are to receive an mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccine continue their biologic or oral therapies for psoriasis and or psoriatic arthritis, in most cases, they don't specify, all right? Shared decision-making is recommended. And so, you know, this is different because ACR gives us, you know, very specific instances where, you know, there should be holidays from, from therapies. But this has caused confusion on Twitter for sure, <laughs> even amongst healthcare providers, about, you know, how do people make these decisions? And I just want to remind the audience that, these type of discussions are actually really fun for academics to have, right? These are thought experiments and we're going through every scenario. We know we're going to be wrong. <laughs> we're just trying to play it out, right? It is very different though when you're having those conversations where you can develop an actionable item, right? I have a lot of admiration for the people on these task forces that <laughs> generated these documents because it is a very vulnerable position for them to be in. Again, they're they're relying on what Vibika had mentioned before, past experience with vaccines, right? Almost every rheumatic disease patient's had a vaccine. But again, there are some nuances here that may or may not be important. And that's where the big guessing game is. And that's the thing that we just don't know. Yeah, that's been the big discourse among rheumatologists is medication changes. I don't know if that's another topic, but... uh, It can be. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Well, I think part of it is that we don't really know the answer and we're extrapolating from some past vaccine studies. And there was a bit of disagreement between the National Psoriasis Foundation and the uh, ACR guidance. And to me, that tells you that there is a little bit of uncertainty and that, again, shared decision making is always going to be the right answer. You know, my take is that you're starting with something so efficacious that we're really in a luxury position here. If you just think about it, we've got a very safe and efficacious vaccine less than a year after COVID, you know, at least came to the U.S. So as I said on Twitter, don't let perfect get in the way of good enough. So, you know, everyone's harking on this 95 percent number. Yeah, I'm not sure no matter what you do with some medications, it, you know, it might, it's a fuzzy thing and maybe it goes down to 92, 94. No one really knows, but they're so efficacious that I think when you come to a consensus with your physician and that you feel good about it and that you get the vaccine, that's the most important part. I want to, I want to piggyback on that because uh, Jeff brings up a really important point that is going to be very misinterpreted when new data comes out about COVID vaccination in our patients. The magnitude of effect is always measured against maximum, right? That's going to be the people not on immunosuppressants. Whether or not you need maximum to get the full protection is probably not the same number, right? You could probably reduce the vaccine response by 25%, 30%, maybe even 50%. Again, I'm just throwing these numbers out. Um, These are not data, right? And still be protected. We actually don't have any labs that tells us that you will be protected or not. And that's the point I wanted to bring up earlier about whether or not we are going to be returning antibody titers to our patients. Right. 
I actually don't know if that titer is going to be protective or non-protective for that person. And as a result, those numbers are actually inactionable pieces of data. It may make you feel better, but they're actually not meaningful. And that's probably very hard to kind of understand because I think there's a, a misconception that these numbers are actually very important. And Vibika had mentioned this before. They're not necessarily the end all because there are numerous arms of the immune system that also get stimulated that can generate these memory responses. We've never had this type of discussion at the macro scale with you know anyone in the world and all of a sudden now it's become important and, and now is is a little bit that as you know kind of in the vaccine world we're now a little bit guilty of this terminology we had used before and got maybe a little lazy right now we're using the wrong metrics the wrong outputs potentially well it could be also i mean there's a lot of clickbait out there and and news outlets are definitely sharing information based on the 95% the 94% That's going out to patients and patients are hearing that. And now as a speech language pathologist, the primary population I work with is kids on the autism spectrum. So there's already a huge group of people in the world that believe very strongly that you don't get vaccines because that can cause autism. So that kind of stuff is coming up. So you're going to have people who have these pre-existing notions And then they see these news stories that focus on the numbers, that focus on, you know, 95% effectiveness or one shot versus two shots. So I think there's so much out there. And depending on what website you go to, you can get somebody, you can get a website that agrees with you 100% or you could get one that disagrees with you 100%. So, you know, in terms of patients, whenever any patient has messaged me and said, hey, you know, my rheumatologist said, don't get it. But my general practitioner said, get it. What do I do? And again, I wasn't in that position, but I always say, look at the ACR guidelines, decide if that is right for you. But the other thing that I say to patients is, you know, I saw the worst side of COVID. I saw the negative impact that it has not only on an individual person, but on a family trying to move on past this. Um, I think I'm somebody who most people now, I think, know of somebody who lost a family member to COVID, but I think I'm one of the rare category that I lost two close family members to COVID. So again, this is all very personal to me. And I appreciate that Tiffany asks me to come on and I try very hard not to cry over everything that I hear. But I think you have to, if you have two doctors giving you two different sets of advice, I think you have to look at the solid information coming from the ACR if you're taking one of these drugs that we've been talking about. And really what is best, not only for myself, but for my family. To me, risking the side effects was worth it because I saw what COVID does to a person. And I know that I'm at higher risk, not only because I have a wonky immune system, but because of the drug that I take. So I think there's a lot of factors that go into taking a vaccine. And I, you know, just from the patient perspective, if you're given information that doesn't make sense, you really have to find out what's best for your family and where you are in that moment. Yeah. And thank you, Kelly, for coming on here and and doing that and, and sharing. I know that that's not easy for you. It's okay. So as we are moving into this last bit here, before we, we close up, I did want to circle back to the newer identified issue that has sort of emerged. And that is this gray area that we have patients who aren't in constant communication, obviously with the rheumatologist, and maybe they're not privy of these new guidelines. And so they don't realize that something may have changed. Their rheumatologist or doctor who may have said three weeks ago, wait for the vaccine. Now, all of a sudden, these new guidelines have come out, but they don't know any different. And as an organization, we are certainly trying, as as many are, to get that word out to our constituents. But the bottom line is this is a big gap. And I'm just wondering from the rheumatologist perspective, what are some of your ideas that either the rheumatologist can do or we as patients who are in communication with other patients or organizations, what can we do as a community to reach that gray area and the patients that are kind of in limbo? I don't know. I think Jeff brought up something interesting earlier about, you know, whether the patient is accessible at all. You know, I think one of the challenges that we have with some of our lupus patients is that they come from, you know, they're disenfranchised from many aspects of, of the healthcare and society, you know, because of disparities. And, I am not necessarily the vehicle that they want to hear from when you talk about vaccines. 
So, you know, we're trying to work with community healthcare workers to be able to do that. And that's, that's kind of a very advanced approach, you know, for a very specific ask that most rheumatologists may not need to do. But I think you know, there's got to be, again, these mechanisms where the community around these patients has some sort of say that allows them to be able to then make a more informed decision. That's really hard, though. Yeah, that's one of the very good things about making the vaccinations available to community health centers, and particularly, you know, in hard impacted areas. And so I think trying to facilitate that is really important. So that's one of the things that we've been asking patients when, when we have their telemedicine appointments is not just about when they're going to get their vaccination, but what about their family members? What about their friends? Who are they concerned about? How can we help allay those fears as well. I think just like everything with COVID, it's going to evolve quickly, and I hope it goes in the right direction, of course. But, you know, my my hope is that, you know, there's kind of many sources of positive reinforcement that the vaccine is good for you and safe. And that's talk other patients like yourself receiving it, other patients on my medication receiving it, you know, trusted family members and friends or, you know, other people in your community that have received it. And, it's not going to be just one approach. And unfortunately, it's not just going to be from a rheumatologist to a patient. We, we really have to think about all the stakeholders that are in this with the patient. What a great segue, Jeff. <laughs> we didn't even plan that. <laughs> so, um, and, and that's exactly where, where we're sort of closing this off here is kind of these next steps, the takeaway, the action these proposed solutions, if you will, and they can only happen if we are all talking, we are all communicating, and it's going to take a team. It's going to take different different action items and different perspectives and, and different types of outreach to, to get everyone here and on the, on the same track. One of the things, as we're talking about solutions, just to summarize a little bit of what we've talked about, the barriers and benefits and the shared decision-making thank goodness for the new guidelines, which are applicable internationally. But something you brought up a little earlier, Jeff, and I know, Al, you too at Washington University are doing some is research. And it's that one question on, it seems like no matter what stakeholder group you are, what's the data? where's Where's the research? And I also have had several patients emailing us asking if there was any way that they could get involved as they're getting their vaccinations and can this be measured? So could you all talk a little bit more about how patients could get involved or if they want to be tracked for their vaccinations and what you're doing and all of the amazing work you're doing? So on the last podcast, we had mentioned that we had started this examination of vaccine efficacy, safety, and patient experience of patients with autoimmune disease on immunosuppressants and, and when they receive the COVID vaccine. Right now, what we, we've done is that we're up to about 78 patients where we can report data on, and we're in the process of finishing up the studies to be able to generate the data, and we should be able to report as a preprint in about two to three weeks. Again, 78 patients, about half are IBD, half of room. We have a smattering of MS patients in there too. And again, these data are going to be probably overinterpreted <laughs> because <they're, laughs> all we're doing is looking at the early vaccine response. This is the third time I mentioned this. But this gives us some interesting information about that kind of the kinetics or timing of the vaccine response, you know, based off of you know various diseases and various therapies. The real meat of the data is going to come later in the summer. And we're up to 150 subjects now enrolled. And this is, you know, in Missouri, this is prior to any of the public getting the vaccine. The vast majority of our autoimmune patients have not been vaccinated. And so we feel like that, you know, between now and the beginning of the summer, we should be able to get hundreds, if not close to a thousand subjects screened both pre-vaccine during the vaccine and also during the memory phase of the vaccine, you know, later on in, you know, three month three and month six. So we'll have a very rich data set that we'll probably able to, you know, we're going to pour into this for, you know, years to come as a lesson about, you know, because we haven't had a data set for vaccination for a lot of our rheumatic diseases before, you know, some pockets, but this is going to be very comprehensive. So again, we'll get the preliminary data out soon with the caveat that this is not the definitive answer, there's going to be a lot more answers coming out in the summer and the fall. Great. 
Thank you for that. So from, from our center, we've been a bit more focused on what happens to patients with rheumatic disease that are infected with COVID. And we've actually identified every patient that's gotten infected at our hospital system, which includes Brigham and Women's Hospital and Mass General Hospital. And, you know, we basically follow to see who gets hospitalized, what happens during the hospitalization and after. We also have a prospective component of that where we actually mail them a blood card for them to provide blood to give us blood to do studies. We're mostly interested in COVID antibodies, but also new, new autoantibodies from rheumatic disease standpoint. And the hope is, is that this will give us a hint, obviously, what happens after infection, but also uh, we don't really know about the long-term vaccine response. So this will give us a hint for what happens there. So we're coming up on a year for the, the year anniversary, unfortunately. So we're going to have timeline as far as, you know, what the antibodies look like a year after infection. We're not quite delving in as deeply as Al related to vaccine quite yet, but our hospital gave a survey about uh, side effects and we're, we're going to identify all of the rheumatic disease patients who have had the survey and had the vaccine and compare them to non-rheumatic patients. So that'll be interesting. And some of our colleagues in infectious disease and allergy immunology are also enrolling patients on immunosuppressants to look before and after COVID vaccination. And then lastly, I'll plug again that we're, you know, part of this Global Rheumatology Alliance. So there's a lot going on with that. But, you know, we send every case of rheumatic disease patients that are infected to the GRA. And then I'm leading this initiative related to an international survey. And we really want it to be diverse all types of patients from all backgrounds, from you know as many countries as possible. So we hope we get a great response there. And the hope is to understand kind of what's going on in people's minds. What are their barriers? What are the facilitators? How willing are they? How hesitant are they? And then also to give a, an early glimpse about the people who, who, if you've had the vaccine, you can still respond and you know get a glimpse about about what they've been going through and what medications you might have you know changed. So we're really excited about that. And obviously, we're, it's not out yet, but we're hoping to get it out pretty soon. Great. Our organization is part of the GRA. We just haven't been as active recently, but I think this is a good opportunity to jump back in there because <laughs> I think we could really help with that distribution internationally. And, and it's definitely something of interest. If there's anything else we forgot, speak now. <laughs> We could talk a lot about medication changes. I think. Well, that's hey, we can topic. have another show. <laughs> we need a lot of cocktails for that episode. <laughs> that could be arranged. All right. <laughs> do that. All right. So as we start to wind down here, this has just been an amazing conversation. And I do want to just take a, a moment out personally to thank each one of you for coming here to the table, Vivica, Jeff, Al, Kelly. It has been amazing to have these conversations with you all and just to kind of summarize these next steps. Before we all convened to talk today, we had said, well, what is going to be the action? What are we going to, what are we going to do here when we, we take away? And really the idea is we need to keep the conversation going. We know this is ever evolving. There's going to be changes and it's important that patients and rheumatologists in our community really stay intertwined be able to identify new barriers as they emerge and be able to find those different ways to communicate and make sure that that we're all on the same page. So one of the things that we are definitely going to do and is sharing this episode, but also on social media, and we've talked about particularly Twitter, where a lot of the rheumatologists are active, that we'd like to hear a little bit about your experiences, your ideas on how to get more education out to our patients and get everyone on doing and participating actively in the shared decision-making. We also, if you visit aiarthritis.org backslash roomy rounds, in addition to finding this episode, you will also find a link to a survey that we will invite you to submit any of your ideas or thoughts or opinions on any of the topics we've discussed today. Also, while you're there, if you are a rheumatologist professional and you enjoy this whole idea and concept of us coming together, there's also a link that you can sign up to be part of Roomy Round. So even if you don't want to be on the show, your voice still matters as we have virtual seats everywhere. But I'm going to throw it back to each person to give any final thoughts and to say anything that if he wanted to find you anywhere. <laughs> so let's um, let's start with Al. All right. So my Twitter handle is at Al H. Kim. 
I will start off by saying that I've been telling all my patients to get vaccinated. I believe the vaccine will be efficacious, it'll be effective, and it will be safe for the vast majority of our patients. And to echo what Jeffrey had said earlier, it is going to be way worse to get COVID-19 as opposed to dealing with any of the side effects that may happen if you happen to get vaccinated. So this is a strong message from me and the others that this is something we believe in. Jeff? My Twitter is at Jeff Sparks. I definitely echo everything Al said. And again, encourage patients to talk to the rheumatologist. And if there's logistical barriers, if there's questions about medications, your disease state, you know, those are things that can be worked out. And those are legitimate questions. But, uh, you know, just like Al said, I've recommended the vaccine to every single patient. Thank you. And thank you, uh, both of you two, for being on the show. Vivica? I'd, I'd echo it. I'd say that it's far better to get the vaccination. And also, I've recommended it to every patient that I've been seeing. I think that even uh, the issue about the medications, those are brief discontinuations, if at all. Again, it's really important to keep your disease under control. So maybe consult the ACR guidelines, talk to your roomie. I'm getting used to that term. Uh, but most of all, have confidence that these are safe vaccinations and they're very, very effective. And this will be the way we can go back to living life as we should be. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Vivica. And Kelly. Well, thank you for allowing me to represent the patient voice. I appreciate that. And co-hosting along with you is always a pleasure. So thanks again. And thank you to Jeff, Al, and Vivica. I really appreciate your input. And I think it's important that you know everybody come to the table and speak equally about how it's impacting people across the board. Yeah. So thank you. Absolutely, Kelly. And just to close off, all of our social media is at IFAI Arthritis. So you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And if you are a person living with these diseases, please visit AIarthritis.org backslash vaccination. See how we make that so easy? So you just really got to know the website and then everything else sort of falls into place. But there we have a form that you could ask us questions and we do answer everybody's inquiry. So if there is anything that you need to know or you're unsure of. We are international, so we'll do our best to find the answers for you. Again, thank you all. And if you are listening, we really encourage you to join us at the table in conversations because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow. Thank you all so very much. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 